When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This week, the lives of the earliest known humans in Australia... I'd never expected in my wildest dreams to find a fragment of megafaunal bone in human rock shoulders. And astronomers should broaden out their portfolio of theories. Diversifying your portfolio is to your advantage. You should not subscribe just to one type of investment. Plus the volcanologist who worked with Werner Herzog on his latest film. This is The Nature Podcast for November the 3rd, 2016. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Kerry Smith. Fifty thousand years ago, Neanderthals roamed Europe, Denisovans were in Asia, and Homo sapiens were everywhere, slowly spreading to every corner of the Earth. Even Australia, where a new find suggests when the ancestors of modern Aboriginal Australians conquered this huge continent. Here's Sharmini Bundell with more. These days, more than 80% of Australia's population live near the coast, and scientists have always thought that when ancient humans first arrived here, they stuck to the edges too. Back then, the climate on the coasts would have been even lusher than it is now. So it would have been a rich, tropical, coastal, rainforest-type environment. This is Giles Hamm on the phone from the not particularly rainforesty Australian city of Sydney. Plants would have been richer. There would have been quite dense populations of animals, lots of kangaroos, lots of wallaby, and then, of course, big rivers full of fish. I wouldn't say paradise, but they probably would have had everything they needed in those environments. There are several archaeological sites from between 45 and 48,000 years ago, showing that no sooner had humans arrived than they started spreading out, but always following the coasts. What's less common is finding settlements from Australia's arid interior. The early models said that basically people came into the continent, they moved around the coast, then they moved inland and started occupying the more arid regions of Australia. So you wouldn't find um, old occupation apart from around the coast. There was an inland site from around 38,000 years ago, but nothing confirmed to be older than that. So, in 2011, when Giles and his colleagues came across a rock shelter hundreds of miles from the coast, they were pretty excited. They were on a remote, rarely visited piece of land north of the coastal city of Adelaide in South Australia. It was found on a routine archaeological survey. We'd found a lot of ancient rock art, and then that basically led us to this rock shelter in this gorge um, called Warrachee. We noticed that the shelter itself was high, elevated above a, a stream bank. And I looked up and we saw the roof of this shelter, which actually was all blackened and the wall was blackened. Of course, that was a very good indicator that possibly people had been in there lighting fires. 
and that 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 sort and that black uh, colour was probably an indication that it had been used quite a lot. And then we walked up the slope up into the shelter, and we suddenly found all these artefacts, stone artefacts, scattered all over the surface. Even on first glance, the ingrained blackness on the ceiling suggested that people had been living there for thousands of years. Careful dating revealed parts of the site to be around 49,000 years old, far older than expected. That age, plus its location in South Australia, means that early humans, who would have arrived in Australia from the north or northwest, travelled a lot further, a lot faster than expected. The rock shelter also contained an amazing array of artefacts. We recovered about 4,300 artefacts. We got a lot of evidence of proper worked flakes for tools. And we found the residues of plant remains. We found the residues of uh, resin that you used to half a flake onto a stick like gum. We found ochre residues. So people have been using those tools to actually crush up ochre to then probably put on their bodies. So there's, there's quite a rich variety of, of evidence of, of a range of activities people were doing with these tools. Some of the tools were probably used to cut meat, and there are other clues as to the types of meat that would have been available. The bone evidence we found uh, in the shelter was the local species of yellowfoot rock wallaby. So they're a sort of smallish kangaroo, and they are very agile, and they live on the rock crevices above the ridges above Warwickshire. So, so they were supplementing you know, the, 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 the vegetable diet with a pretty much a rich meat diet if they could get it. In more recent years, Aboriginal Australians caught the agile wallabies by weaving plants into nets. Giles thinks these first Australians would have used some of the same techniques. They'd wait for them to come down to drink water and then they'd herd them down and they'd get them right down into an area and they'd put their nets up and they'd, get, they'd go right into the nets and they'd just hit them on the head. I've got evidence of this plant that they used locally to make wallaby nets in sediments within Warwickshire Rock Shelter. So we assume that they were, early on, they developed these netting technologies. But we've got to prove it. We've got to find the residues of these plants' fibres on the stone tools. So we, we want to do that. We want to do more research. And it wasn't just a quick wallaby supper that these humans were after. The site also shows the first solid evidence for humans interacting with Australian megafauna, mostly giant marsupials, that went extinct shortly after humans arrived on the continent, like the friendly diprotodon. So we found a fragment of uh, radius bone uh, of a juvenile diprotodon. So these animals were uh, almost three tonne in weight, the adults, and about four metres in length, and they were a cross between a rhinoceros I don't know if you've seen a rhinoceros and a wombat. Imagine a huge herbivorous bear with a prominent lumpy nose. And when we found this, this fragment of radius, you know, we just, I, did, I didn't believe it. I thought it was actually a large red kangaroo femur because it was so big. And because I'd never expected in my wildest dreams to find a fragment of megafaunal bone in human rock shoulders. We looked at the bone very carefully to find evidence of butchering and cut marks from stone tools but we couldn't find anything. The bone is quite weathered, but the very fact that it's up there, um, no, there's no way a juvenile diprotodon could get up into that rock shelter, it's so steep, um, is, 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 must have been the result of humans bringing it into the site. That was Giles Ham of the Department of Archaeology and History, Latrobe University in Melbourne, Australia, talking about giant marsupial rhino wombat bears with Sharmini Bundell. You can find his paper at nature.com. Still to come in the research highlights, noise distracts mongooses from sensing danger and the importance of fish to diets worldwide. Before that, 
Noah Baker heads to the movies and a new documentary by German filmmaker Werner Herzog in which science meets mythology. Neath the sea the land sinketh, the sun dimmeth, from the heavens fall the fair bright stars, gusheth forth steam and gutting fire, to very heaven soar the hurtling flames. The fates I fathom, yet farther I see, of the mighty gods, the engulfing doom. This is an extract from Werner Herzog's latest documentary, Into the Inferno. The theme of the film is volcanoes, but it isn't your average explanatory documentary. Herzog conceived the film with Cambridge University volcanologist Clive Oppenheimer. It interweaves the geology of these magma-spouting mountains with vignettes of their cultural and historical significance to people around the world. These primordial occurrences influence the sense of mythical poetry of the Icelanders. There is a text that defines the spirit of the people. It exists only in a single manuscript. For Iceland, it is as important as the Dead Sea Scrolls are for Israel. I've seen plenty of documentaries covering the science and monitoring and the catastrophes. That's Clive Oppenheimer. What's really exciting me and the vision I had for making a film was to look much more at the anthropology, the, the societies that have adapted to living on volcanoes, the cosmologies and mythologies that they've built up around these extraordinary mountains. So that was always, always the intention. And I think it's one of the things that I love about volcanology is, is actually how it interfaces not just with the geosciences, but with archaeology, anthropology, uh, physics, mathematics, the humanities. So there's so many angles you can approach volcanology from. And that's one of the things, again, that I wanted to convey from the film. Oppenheimer first met Herzog 10 years ago while working on a volcano called Erebus in the Antarctic. Herzog was making another documentary at the time called Encounters at the End of the World. He spent about a week in our field camp, three and a half thousand metres up on the side of Mount Erebus, and uh, we, we fell in, really, fell in together then, and talked vaguely about making a volcano film one day. And then about five years ago, I'd finally finished working on a book, Eruptions That Shook the World, which covers big eruptions in history and prehistory, and I sent him a copy and I wrote inside it, you know, now is time to get serious about making this movie. And so filming began in several locations you might not expect. I, I wanted to have locations that are not seen so often in documentaries, so not just going to Pompeii and Herculaneum and uh, just, just to get something that people are really unfamiliar with. So off they went, to the islands of Vanuatu, to the volcanic rifts of Ethiopia to look for early hominid remains, and to North Korea to talk to volcanologists in the shadow of Pektu Mountain. And what's fascinating about North Korea is, is not just that it has a volcano which was responsible for one of the largest eruptions in history in the 10th century, but also that it's, it's a cultural icon. It's, it's the sacred mountain of the revolution for North Koreans. So again, the anthropology is woven into... The, um, the science in, in very intriguing ways. As you might expect from a film about volcanoes, there's no shortage of dramatic shots, some of which came with a risk. One of the sites, uh, Mount Sinabung in Sumatra, that we filmed at, we, we were in there with, uh, with permits from the authorities, uh, but filming in an exclusion zone, and we, we did what we needed to do very rapidly, and I, I never took my eyes off the, the volcano and, uh, 
a couple of weeks later, there, there was a, an event that claimed about seven lives. The film acknowledges the danger of filming such volatile phenomena in a tribute to two volcanologists who lost their lives shooting footage on Mount Unzen in Japan. We would often discuss the life and work of a French couple, Katya and Maurice Kraft. They were famous for capturing incredible images of volcanoes. But this meant that they had to get dangerously close to their subject, too close, as it would eventually turn out. Maurice and Katia Crafts, I actually met them when I was a PhD student. They used to go to the volcanological conferences and show their latest film. And I, I remember meeting Maurice, and he, he said to me, ah, oh, Clive, 90% of uh, French men, they die in their beds, and uh, you know, if I go, I want to go on a volcano. And that, that, that uh, is what transpired for both of them. Oppenheimer relished the chance to work on a film about his pet topic, but he says it's not for every scientist. I just wouldn't be prescriptive about it. It's a bit like uh, the drive to be interdisciplinary. I think you know it's wonderful being interdisciplinary, and I, it's something I enjoy working with uh, colleagues in in the humanities or social sciences or engineering, chemistry. But uh, I, you know, I don't think that's right for everybody. I think it's great that there are people who just do their niche thing, uh, but take it to a very very advanced level. And possibly Werner Herzog himself fits that description better than anyone. I thank my lucky stars for, for that encounter with him on Erebus ten years ago, which uh, you know was a, just a piece of serendipity. And I, I hope I can be involved in more filmmaking in the future because it's it's a great way to extend what you do scientifically and and make something creative out of it. Science is clearly a creative process, but it hasn't satisfied all of my inclinations, so it's been wonderful to be involved in this film. That was Clive Oppenheimer speaking with Noah Baker. You also heard clips of Werner Herzog's narration in the film. You can find Into the Inferno on Netflix, and if you are watching, look out for The Chicken Church. I'll say no more. If you don't have a Netflix subscription, but you are in need of some video, then fear not. We've just published a new animation on our YouTube channel, A Scientist's Guide to the US Election. Find out which seats up for grabs in the Congress could influence science in the future. Stay tuned for the news chat, how to relocate a telescope and how to fight Zika by releasing mosquitoes. But first, Cory Locke is here with her pick of this week's research highlights. Noise can be distracting, but for animals, it can interfere with their senses. Researchers studied the behavior of wild dwarf mongooses in different noise environments. They placed feces from either a predator or a herbivore outside the animal's burrow. When the scientists played natural ambient sounds, the mongooses stayed close to the burrow after sniffing out the predator poop. But when the animals heard road noise, they responded in similar ways to both types of feces. Noise pollution could be distracting the mongooses and increasing stress. And this may interfere with their ability to avoid predators. The work was published in the journal Current Biology. Data from the United Nations suggests that freshwater fish satisfy most or all of the dietary protein needs of more than 150 million people around the world. Any declines in these fish populations could be catastrophic for these people who live primarily in poor nations. Researchers used the data to build a global map of river fisheries. 
they found that the highest catch rates were in areas where biodiversity was also highest. This raises concerns about conservation. The Mekong, Amazon, and Niger rivers were some of the most heavily fished. You can learn more about the study from the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Next up, are physicists turning a blind eye to competing theories? One astronomer thinks so. Kerry takes a closer look. It must have been nice to be an astronomer for the Mayans. In the Mayan culture, uh, the astronomers had a very high uh, social status. This is modern-day astronomer Avi Loeb, who's at Harvard University. And they were highly respected because they had a huge influence on the political system. They would forecast what will happen in the future. And so politicians found astronomy to be extremely important. But when Avi visited the Mayan city Chichen Itza on a family holiday to Mexico this summer, instead of feeling jealous of his past counterparts, he was just puzzled. I wondered to myself, um, why uh, didn't the Mayans go farther and uh, infer aspects of our modern understanding of astronomy? He did a bit of reading. And uh, realized that they had uh, a mythology of um, astrology. Basically, they were trying to correlate uh, events on the sky with uh, human history and uh, under the, the model, the theoretical uh, assumption that uh, you can forecast the future. If uh, uh, objects on the sky move in a specific pattern uh, and human history follows that. And so that was their theoretical model. Obviously it's wrong in a modern perspective, but because they collected the, their data under this uh, assumption, they didn't really bother to interpret it differently in a scientific way. And so that led me to ask, uh, have we learned the lesson? Are we avoiding a similar fate in, in the way we deal with uh, scientific discovery? Surprise, surprise, Avi's trip led him to the conclusion that no, we haven't learned and we're not avoiding the fate of my own astronomers. He's thinking particularly about physics, where there's currently one model to rule them all. The standard model has some question marks and a few holes, but most physicists agree it's the best there is. Avi was assessing a PhD candidate recently when the problem with this setup crystallised for him. At the PhD exam that I attended, uh, where a student was uh, supposed to check uh, the, the conventional model against uh, data from a big survey, and uh, there was some disagreement. And both the student, encouraged by uh, her advisor, was motivated to examine uh, what's wrong with the data. Uh, perhaps the data is incomplete. And the conclusion of that uh, analysis was uh, the data set is not good enough because it disagrees with the model. Avi argues it's better to keep an open mind or risk ending up like the Mayan culture did, bending the data to fit the worldview. One thing that uh, worries me uh, and has been worrying me uh, for, for many years now is that uh, we, we do have a standard model of the cosmology of the universe, uh, similar to the model that uh, the Mayan culture had of, of, of the universe in the sense that everyone seems to uh, subscribe to it uh, and there is a, a very strong brand of orthodoxy, of conservatism. But at the same time, the model is just uh, encapsulating our, our ignorance because we don't know what the nature of its ingredients are. It's not that astronomers aren't thinking of alternative explanations for things that the standard model has a job explaining. 
and they get excited by the thought that an observation doesn't fit with what they expect from the model. But big, costly experiments, Avi says, are still set up with certain assumptions in mind. A lot of funds are being uh, channeled in the direction of big projects uh, with big teams with a very prescribed agenda uh, where the results are forecasted in advance. And when you know your results in advance, it means that there is no prospect for improving our understanding. You're basically uh, telling people what to do. Uh, It's sort of like a business venture where you need to produce a product. And to stick with the business analogy, science should hedge its bets, Avi suggests. It's actually not so much about uh, adding more funds. It's about uh, the way of spending them. Um, uh, Any uh, investor or any uh, venture capitalist knows that um, uh, diversifying your portfolio is to your advantage. You should not subscribe just to one type of investment. Of course, we can't go completely nuts and entertain all the alternatives. Otherwise, this wouldn't be science. I do think data is extremely important. Uh, That's what distinguishes uh, science from philosophy. Data is extremely important. But good data are not enough. Um, We do need to have the correct uh, mindset in interpreting the data. And, you know, every now and then uh, we just have the wrong ideas. One other cheap solution is to go back into archive data and look afresh at what's there already, without wearing the same glasses everyone else wore at the time. There is the example in astronomy where uh, gravitational lensing uh, is an effect where light coming from a source behind a very massive object like a cluster of galaxies gets bent, bent by gravity and the gravity can act as a lens and there were images, images posted on the astrophysical journal from observations of the sky uh, of clusters of galaxies where uh, there would be these giant arcs seen in the images but nobody paid attention nobody looked at them Uh, Only a decade later, uh, people started talking about gravitational lensing. Then if you go back to to those early papers, you would see these arcs uh, and, and the data was there. Recycling can work wonders, can't it? At the end of my chat with Avi Loeb, one important question remained to be answered. There's one last thing I need to know. Uh, it sounds as if, Avi, you were a bit of a formidable PhD examiner. Did the, uh, did the student pass her PhD? <laughs> yes, the student definitely passed. One of my challenges is to convince young people uh, to, to be more daring, to take risks, not to agree with their supervisors. Well, if that isn't an invitation to rebel, I don't know what is. That was Harvard astronomer Avi Loeb. Read the full comment piece in the mag this week. That's at nature.com slash news. Finally this week, it is the news chat and reporter Ewan Calloway joins us in the studio. Hi, Ewan. Hey there. So first to the ongoing fight against Zika. Now, two South American cities are looking to combat Zika by actually releasing mosquitoes. Yeah, it's a bit confusing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Kill the mosquitoes by releasing mosquitoes. No, this is a this is a story that goes back nearly two decades when some researchers found out that when this bacteria called Wolbachia infects mosquitoes and other insects, it makes the insects impervious to certain viruses, including dengue, Zika, and chikungunya, which have both raged through South America. So the news is 
that these researchers have won funding to release, you know, large, large amounts of mosquitoes in, in parts of Rio de Janeiro and parts of Medellin, Colombia. So it'll be the, the world's largest trial, this kind of unusual uh, approach to combating mosquito-borne diseases. So it is still a trial. We're not sure that this technique will work. Yeah, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of questions. But we've tested this um, in the real world before. First in Australia, and later in um, I believe in Indonesia and in, in Vietnam. And we know from those those studies that if you release a even just you know a small number, a few thousand of these Wolbachia infected mosquitoes into an area. They mate with uninfected mosquitoes and they transfer the infection. So we know that we can get a, a population of mosquitoes infected with Wolbachia in, in, in the wild. What we don't know, and what, one thing we're hoping to learn from these deployments in South America, is whether releasing these mosquitoes can prevent the transmission of diseases like dengue fever and Zika. It seems like it should, but this is the kind of thing you really have to test. So how many mosquitoes approximately is this involving? Are we talking a couple of thousand? It's definitely over over tens of thousands. When they did a trial in two parts of Cairns in, in northern Australia, they released tens of thousands of mosquitoes, and that was targeting less than half a million people. These these deployments, by contrast, will each target 2.5 million people. So they're going to have to scale up the number of, of mosquitoes they're releasing with this bacteria. And so I think really the real questions that need to come out of these deployments is, number one, do they do anything to combat disease? They should, but we need to find that out. And number two, can we try something like this in a city this, the size of Rio de Janeiro, which is full of you know large, unplanned areas, you know these favelas, and it might be hard to release mosquitoes into them. One of the big problems with interventions like this historically has been not necessarily the intervention itself, but more public perception around it. And that's of course the case when they're genetically modified efforts to to combat diseases like this. Is public perception? so much of a problem with Wolbachia-infected mosquitoes as it would be, say, with genetically modified? It's hard to weigh the two together. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you this. I mean, with the, the researchers who are working on the Wolbachia deployments, they're working closely um, with communities, with families to to promote this. And, you know, I, I spoke with the researchers and they said, you know, in, in Australia before they did this, they spent years um, building up community support. And in South America, they've been, they've been on the ground for, I think, since, you know, since 2014 or earlier, building similar support. And one researcher told me that people are asking for more um, Wolbachia-infected mosquitoes because, you know, frankly, like, especially, you know, Zika is a problem that, that's come, al- come online fairly recently to these countries. But dengue fever is, you know, a huge endemic problem uh, in, in urban areas and in South America. And I think people are seeing that other mosquito control measures aren't working. And if this is something, you know, that's safe, which it seems, you know, unquestionably to be, and it could be effective, I think they're willing to give it a try. Let's turn to our second story of the week, which is on uh, a research project which definitely has got public perception problems, which is uh, the building of the 30-metre telescope on the mountain Mauna Kea in Hawaii. Where are things now with, with plans to build this telescope? The latest news is that the international organization that's supporting the construction of this telescope slated to be built 
on uh, Mauna Kea in, in Hawaii has come up with a, a plan B. They identified a, a site in the Canary Islands that could host this telescope should things not work out in Hawaii. And why might things not work out in Hawaii? Why are there such big public concerns about this telescope? The construction of the, of the, of the 30-meter telescope has been quite polarizing in Hawaii and there seems to have been a lot of uh, local opposition among native Hawaiians who view uh, Mauna Kea as a, a sacred place. And this is a, a location that's got uh, numerous other telescopes on site. And I think there were concerns that building an, another telescope, and especially one of the largest telescopes in, in, in the world, would further disrupt uh, this, 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 this location. It's still possible, though, that the uh, astronomers will be able to build the 30-meter telescope on Mauna Kea. What, what are they waiting for? When will they know whether they can? So what happened was in December of last year, Hawaii State Supreme Court um, nullified the permit that would allow the 30-meter telescope to proceed. And now they have to go through the process of, of reapplying for permission to build the telescope, which is sure to be bogged down in, in controversy and appeals. Would the Canary Islands be just as good a location? I mean, is there any sacrifice being made if they were to move it to the Canary Islands? Mauna Kea was picked because it's a 4,000-meter volcanic mountain in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, and it's it's... It's beneath some of the clearest skies on, on the planet. And the site in the Canary Islands is, is nearly 2,000 meters lower in altitude, and that's 2,000 meters more of atmosphere that the telescope has to deal with. So that could potentially compromise some of its measurements. Thanks, Ewan. And check out nature.com forward slash news for more on those stories and for the latest from our US team with less than a week to go till the election. Nail-biting stuff. But if you prefer photos of cute animals to politics, you'll also find our pictures of the month featuring a close-up of a naked mole rat colony. Adorable. That's all for this week. You can always find us on Twitter at Nature Podcast or just drop us an email, podcast at nature.com. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Adam Levy. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.